I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you especially to those of you who've taken a moment sometime this past week to recommend the show to a friend. That is really and truly the way people learn about this show. So I, I'm I'm grateful if you have. I'm, I'm also particularly grateful to all of you who have subscribed to The Secret Show. If you like Slee Ricketts and you would like to hear more and even perhaps uh, more, <laughs> a slightly less filtered version of the show, then do go to sleerickets.substack.com and uh, and sign up there. You can put your, your email address in and then I'll give you a, a, a week free and you can decide if you like it. There are about probably about three episodes come out every month and the the price, will it's very cheap right now. It will go up in January. So uh, this is a good time to jump on. My guest this week is John Dilworth. He is a poet, a producer, a performer, a, a really a Renaissance man. He's based in Atlanta. He's he um, he is a. I think it's fair to call him a professional poet, which is to say, he he does not teach at a university. He actually makes a living by doing poetry. I'm going to have links to his stuff in the in the show notes. His most recent book is called A Collection of Collections. Uh, his, his website is johnfdilworth.com. I'll, I'll have all that in the show notes and, and I'll mention again at the end of the show. Um, he was an extremely good sport. I, I gave him homework. I, I asked him some, some difficult questions. He was could not have been nicer or more generous with his time and his thoughts. Uh, this was a quite, this ends up being kind of an unusual interview. It was, it's, you know, he and I have, I think, very different poetry backgrounds and maybe very different tastes in poetry but we found a lot that we could dig into together it's also at times maybe a slightly more contentious interview than than the typical one at least on my end he was he was rather saintly throughout but i i I think you will enjoy it i think it is it will provide some variety and maybe simulation and i and i do hope to hear from all of you, uh, what about your thoughts? And to hear, and I, and I hope you'll go check out his uh, website and his work as well. There was a there's a section I ended up cutting out where we spoke about Viktor Frankl's book *Man's Search for Meaning*. I cut it out, as you might guess, because a lot of it was redundant with uh, the recent episode I did all about that book in particular. So if you want to hear uh, more thoughts about *Man's Search for Meaning*. You can go to episode 82, I believe. Not the last episode, but the one before. With that, let's get to my conversation with John F. Dilworth. We've, we've got a, a bunch of, I think, really juicy stuff to talk about. Um, I So at the top of my mind, because the by far the most controversial guest I've had on so far. Not you yet. You might, you know, who knows? Um, still, there's still room to grow. But uh, is a guy I had on sort of recently who who makes, re- like, more so than anyone else I've had on, a significant portion of his income comes from selling poetry. Right? Rather than teaching, you know, teaching poetry is was one of these essays is about and uh, and plenty of other things people do. Like he, he makes a significant portion of his income from the poetry, like doing the poetry itself. Itself. Um, he was controversial for other reasons, but I think maybe not totally 
unrelated reasons, I think like in some ways. So you are also in a pretty unusual position for most poets that I know in that poetry is a, like actual making and delivering poetry is a real part of your, uh, your, how you sustain yourself. Is that accurate? Is that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's basically one of those things where with poetry, one of the ways that I, I feel about poetry is that it's not just the words that are written on the page. Poetry for me is more of a way of life. Um, the way I express myself is poetry. And so there's, here's, a, here's an interesting tie. Okay. So a lot of my, you know, all of my professional life has been really in technology. I was a Microsoft engineer for years. Okay. And I was always writing. But even within the ability for me to grow within organizations, I was always um, advancing when I was working in that environment. And I think that the poetry in me was a big part of it. I'm not a super technical uh, whiz kid. Okay. But when I had to communicate with stakeholders and things of that nature, the, 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 the poetry that is in me is what allowed me to connect with people. Right. And I think that I could make a connection between that and the way I made money. And now with poetry being an even larger part or a more direct part of, 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 of how I make money, how I grow financially, um, it's because it's not just the poetry. Uh, for, for my book, I had to go and I, I made it a lot more than just poetry. I partnered with a photographer. I mean, it's in 1500 DPI. It's, 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 it's crazy, but, but you're getting more than poetry when you engage with a lot of what I do. Well, okay. So I, I want to maybe clarify something because I'm, I'm fascinated by what you just said. And you are in that way, like, I think like a man after Dana Joya's own heart, because he was a, he was like a business guy who then shifted and ended up working as the running the NEA for a while. He was a Kroger or something, I think. You remind me too of some of my friends who work in technical fields. As it has turned out, a lot of their greater success has come not from their ability to execute at this high technical level, but to communicate about that with the people who don't ex like being the person who can do that, but then also can, can like stand face to face and have a normal conversation with somebody turns out to be a really valuable skill. So you, that, that was part of what you were, you experienced. It sounds like. That's exactly what I experienced. Okay. And um, some of, some of the folks, even some of our mentors will say, yeah, well, now when I speak to you, it's like you, you're a person who's got the left brain and the right brain activated and i think <laughs> i think with technology yeah it's yeah. kind of like you know being able to be the bridge because there's this one you know box of semantics with all these different you know ways to communicate in the yeah, technical yeah. Uh, terms but then there's also just uh, people understanding one another despite their knowledge level but as a as a poet it also allows me to bring a part of that into poetry. I mean, there's, there's poems that I write where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about the cloud and stuff like that. Right. Okay. So, okay. so then, all right. The thing I wanted to clarify though, is you said that part of what makes poetry sort of viable for you as, as a part of your occupation and sp even specifically in your book is that it's not isolated. It's integrated yeah. with photographs and prose and other forms of storytelling and whatever else. 
but then you also a moment earlier said poetry for you is something broader than just like verse on a page. So what, what is, what does that mean? How is, is, are you using poetry just to mean like anything that's art or like, is it like poesis, like the old Greek sense of like all making is like, how are you using poetry? A great example is a production I'm working on right now. So, okay. so my, my, my most recent volume of poetry uh, that that's been published is called a collection of collections black american poetry okay so so black american poetry is a production i'm working on we're going to be having a uh, a season of a show called black american poetry a season and, oh, and like a there's an in-person like a yes a, tour, a touring yeah. show okay exactly so so we so we've done our first episode of this show at, at city okay. winery atlanta and in the show called black american poetry the first episode is John F. Dilworth. I did a, a collection of collections live. Now, in the future episodes of the show, there will be episodes that feature a poet, but there will also be episodes that feature a person who does something else that is Black artistic expression, Black American okay. Okay. artistic expression. So right. yeah, yeah, yeah. poetry in the sense of however you are artistically expressing yourself. And in this sense, as coming from the African-American experience, now okay. I also will do things yeah, yeah, yeah. like motivational speaking or, you know, things like that. I'm, and I, I incorporate I'm super, I'm super curious about that. I have a ton of questions for you about that, but we'll, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. So yeah, you, you, you do a few different things. Uh, and, and, and so the way you're using poetry is like in the old Greek sense of like all art, everything we would call art today counts as poetry. Yes. And then specifically yes. you focus on, black american art made exactly. in different genres okay mm -hmm. um all right okay that 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 makes sense to me and i want to dig into some of what you do specifically with that particularly in the context of the stain of joya essay so i sent you a what i'm now realizing based on some of the responses i've gotten is probably a an overwhelming list of, of like possible articles but you like very, you were totally game and you're like oh good a podcast interview that makes me do homework yeah. and you were completely willing to, to dig in so i was very grateful for that but you chose two i think complementary pieces one uh, quite long and one quite short uh can poetry matter which is a famous old uh piece by dana joya from the atlantic and then uh, Americans have never loved poetry more, but they call it rap, which is one of those titles that sort of gives you the whole thesis very efficiently uh, right. by John McWhorter. And that ran in the Daily Beast. Um, and that was the uh, Can Poetry Matter came out in 1991. Um, the Americans have never loved poetry more. It sounds like it, 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 the date here says 2017, but I think the original date was 2014, I think. Um, I think that's right. And And they have like... Yeah, we'll talk about like how relevant they both are to today, which I think is maybe a, there are a few different levels of relevance. But I'm just first, I'm curious, what, why did you choose these two out of my big crazy list that I sent you? I think they both kind of jumped out at me as uh, kind of definitely related to my experience <clears throat> with poetry in, in, in America, you know, because uh, when you look at uh, the way that people interact with poetry these days, it kind of um, always has this shell on it that presents itself as maybe something that, you know, isn't what we think of as poetry, but really when you peel back the layers, it is. And so that's the same for me. A lot of my influences as a poet um, are not the famous 
poets. They are okay. some of the famous rappers. Okay. And so, or, you know, things like that are very relevant to to my experience and especially mm -hmm. in uh, trying to keep poetry or even bring poetry to a to a higher degree of relevance in the way people view it today. You referred to this sort of shell or veneer that sits on top of poetry. Now, I can think of a, a, a couple ways. You're talking specifically about like the veneer or the sh like the shell people encounter when like what he talks about is just like the general public bumps into the idea of poetry. They have this, there's this sort of force field they, they bump into. What is that? How do you think that, what do you think that means to most people when they come at, when they encounter the word poetry? What is that shell exactly? If, if I've characterized that accurately. I think, I think that's the thing is that they, they don't encounter the word. They encounter the shell, right? So here's okay. a, here's an example. Um, <clears throat> I've seen some commercials, uh, a few of the larger brands out there, right? And they'll have a very uh, dramatic commercial uh, with some beautiful music playing. And you hear a narrator um, giving, giving you something, you know, during the Super Bowl or something, you know, big, big time commercials. And that is poetry. The, the, the things they are reciting. Those are the types of things that I would right, right, right. even uh, love to do more of, right? So that is poetry, but it's not going to really get the, uh, the, the accreditation to say, oh, this is for people to receive sure. it as, this is traditional poetry I'm consuming. Yeah, They're yeah. thinking this is traditional marketing and advertising I'm consuming, yeah, 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 yeah. right? So poetry gets kind of um, understated. But it's the it's the core of what gets the message across. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. So that that I, I so I had I, I had it backwards. Um, what you were saying, like th th there is a that we run into a lot more poetry than we would acknowledge, than we would yes. bother to call poetry. And you're I think you're totally right about advertising, good, bad, or otherwise. It is it definitely has a, a genetic connection to yes. poetry. Like it's James yes. Dickey, famously like was an advertising writer and like claimed probably falsely to have come up with Coke is it. Um, and uh, when I, like when I worked with a group of comedy writers here, a lot of them had connections to the advertising world. My um, uh, brother is a very good comedy writer. Is not brother, brother-in-law is a very good comedy writer, works in marketing. And like th that's, I think you're, you're, you're totally right about that. I think sometimes, sometimes that, that common bloodline it, is is good and sometimes it's not so good, but I think that is related in the same way that David Yezzy talks about poetry being related to joke writing, that, that kind of, that sort of sprung construction in, in preparing people to have a response to something, building up a punchline or building up to a punchline. That's all, that's all part of the same uh, family tree. Poetry is, poetry is woven. It's, it's woven into all of that. Uh, yeah. If you look at Richard Pryor, on stage, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is that is a a poetic performance that is being viewed. Uh, if you're willing to accept that poetry is is always un, uh, under the shell, and the shell in that sense is oh, people are consuming comedy without really realizing that this is beautiful poetry that we're also witnessing. And the one that was first, you know, thinking about the commercials, a lot of times those are standard poems, you know, written and somebody's reciting it. 
Uh, in the sense of comedy, it's, it's, it's not structurally the same as a standard poem, but as if society would begin to realize more that what you are experiencing is poetry, I think the very word, when you experience the word poetry, now people have a connotation of it that is more mainstream. Oh yeah, no, right. I mean, so all right. So you're I, maybe like shell then is like uh, you're using this to mean like a a, facade, a disguise, almost. like a like uh, a yeah, a, yeah wolf in sheep's clothing, or or vice versa, maybe. Uh, and and I, and I do think like you're right. This structurally, in terms of the prosody, you know, rhyme and, and meter and sound, in that sense, poetry and joke writing is not related. But I think rhetorically it is, and even imagistically, like. I think any stand-up comic will tell you that like German Shepherd is always going to be funnier than Dog. And with poets, like you want the specific image, you want to get as crisp mm -hmm. as possible because that's gonna that's gonna stick in the mind more, and it's gonna it's going to it's gonna make a punchline land better, or a you know a closing line of a poem land better than a broad generalization will. So I, th I think they I think they actually have some real similarities. Just to 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 dive for a moment into this big swampy. But I do like I've made fun of Dana Joy on this podcast a number of times. I do think he is pretty fucking smart. <laughs> like and like this is a it is a smart and it is a well researched essay. The big argument of the essay is twofold. One is never has it been so easy to earn a living as a poet, which boy does not that does not feel relevant today. <laughs> that does not feel like that doesn't. I mean, I read that I think the last time I read this was like 10, 20, 10, 10 or fifteen years ago, uh, and boy, it it has. It is dated, and so I mean, I think in ways that he would he would probably celebrate, and to some extent because of things he he did. But then the other part of what he says is that poetry is in a although the poetry the poetry job market at the time was booming, I would say I would call that a bubble, and I think that bubble has sort of more or less collapsed at this point, or, or come close to collapsing um, for you know building up uh, MFA programs and, and positions. But then the other half of, of what he says is that poetry is dead to the general readers, and it's dead to uh, a particular category of the general readership that that he points to, which I'm I'm curious about. I'm curious about your thoughts. Where he says basically, there's like a five million person population in the United States, and this was in '91 again, uh, that is educated, that goes to, that reads serious newspapers and sees serious theater. I mean, if, I, if five million people go to see serious theater, I you know I'll eat my shoe. But I think like. I mean that that he's pointing to like a, a particular, very much minority but still significant population that is sort of interested in high art. He would say, mm -hmm. and he said like it's not just that general readers we you know are are uh, are not interested in poetry anymore. Don't look you know we don't publish poetry much in, in newspapers for general readers to read, but also people who really care about fine art don't especially care about poetry. They're they're more interested in. They'll, they'll sooner go to a classical music concert than they would go to a poetry recital. I mean, that's certainly true. Like my parents would go to a classical musical concerts fairly often. I mean, my sister is a classical musician, so that helped. But like they, they would go to that stuff fairly often unless it was me. I don't think they would go to a poetry recital. I mean, anything and like it's hard to it's hard to blame them. But but I think the although the like the academic aspect of this essay, which is granted a big part of it is not really that relevant anymore. I do think that there's that he's probably still right about that other population. I'm curious, you came from a business um, perspective, you know, business background. And based on at least some of your poems that I've, I've uh, seen you recite, you had a, like a fairly hard scrabble upbringing. 
did you like what was your encounter with the academic poetry world if any so my encounter with academic poetry is is pretty much none um <laughs> you know god bless for, you sir. <laughs> yeah for me that's that's never been my path uh, yeah. and it's interesting that i've found myself in uh places in my life where the path that i've taken people say wow oh i didn't expect that right so yeah academic poetry not not very much at all when i was in school i was thinking in uh, terms of technology so so academic poetry has, has has never been my style when you think about the the market for high-end art right the and then you think about oh, art yeah yeah, sorry. yeah when you think about the market for high-end art consumption you know? mm -hmm. and then you look at poetry and the and the performance or recitals of poetry, a lot of the poetry recital that I've been exposed to is, is the spoken word. Yep. And when you think about where does the spoken word happen, you know, it may be at the grungy place that you know is is kicked back. You know, no um, high society may not be right. the ones who frequent yeah. these types of places. So when you look at you know, the spoken word, when you go to hear or engage with poetry, it's very different from the academic poetry that you read in the publication format, right? Yeah. Because performance poetry takes on a whole different culture. It's got a street culture. It's got a scientific culture. I mean, it's, it's so many different, a theatrical yeah, yeah, component yeah. to it. Yeah, so there are big yeah. pieces of, yeah, that can, may or may not be uh, uh, fit into the 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 framework of that consumer of high-end art. On, on the one hand, I want to say like grungy, grungy no account dives like the presidential inauguration. But you know, like I think you're right. Like generally speaking, like that is the exception, and, and, that, and there's a reason that that may have had the impression it did, made the impression it did. But I think because yeah. because spoken word poetry is designed to in like engage the audience. It's, it's designed to be yeah. fun, right? You know, in, yeah. in, in uh, academic academic poetry has never tried to be fun i mean is like isn't fun isn't like so seldom have i gone to academic readings and had people even sitting in the audience feel like they were there expecting to have a good time like they're expecting mm. to have a bad time usually they're expecting to go there and like do their do penance in a way and like and and i, and I do kind of wonder with like my i know my parents appreciate music and and my, clearly my, my sister and brother-in-law are very serious musicians but like i think a lot of people of you know, uh, like a lot of upper middle class people go to the symphony, not just because they personally love music. I think that's changed a little bit. I think it's not as bad as it used to be. But I think for a lot of people, it was sort of like it was a version of going to church in some cases. I mean, church can be a very sincere undertaking for people, but it can also be a place where you go to dress nice and be seen. And mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, classical music performances can be that. I had the connection I had not made before that, that I think you just highlighted is between spoken word as a cultural phenomenon and bohemia, which is sort of can transcend class, but like there are, there are rich bohemians and poor bohemians. There are educated and uneducated bohemians, but they all, are, they all care about art. And so you, you do end up getting kind of an interesting mix of people. Uh, and I mean, and, and it can also cross, you know, cross race lines. There, there is a, there is kind of an interesting mix there. How would you, if you had to give a definition to, to in a vacuum, to somebody who knew nothing about any of this, how would you distinguish between spoken word poetry and what 
what you encounter elsewhere is that people the what what people feel what people recognize and say that is poetry whether or not that's you know that's the only poetry they're really encountering so the difference between spoken word poetry and you mean what people the call what, with the shell. what people call poetry for you know uh, not f formal means a different thing but you know page poetry is the other term gotcha, i guess gotcha. the biggest difference of course is the difference in listening and reading those two different things have a whole uh i mean they create whole different worlds right so when you're reading versus when you're listening that experience by itself for even if you haven't encountered poetry you can think about reading music versus hearing it, or reading a speech versus hearing it or reading a novel versus listening to it on uh, the amazon uh the, the the one with the audio books, oh, audio, right? yeah, audible, yeah, audible, audio, right, books, right, yeah. audible. So even if you don't know anything about poetry, just think about the differences you already know between reading versus listening. Then once you take it a step further, the emotional responses I believe that spoken word can evoke versus those that reading does. Those are very different too, because that, that's a very different dynamic. Once you add in uh, the vocal tones, once you add in the movement. Yeah. So when you're going to encounter spoken word poetry, for me, I like the fact that there is a theatrical component to it. And if I were to describe it to someone else, I would think of it as a theatrical version of what you read, where you can actually engage your other senses. You know, you can engage not only just your mind where you can be reading, but when you're engaging spoken word poetry, you're using your eyes, you're using your ears. You can, you, the, the, the temperature in the room matters. I think spoken word as I've encountered it feels very much of a piece with stand-up comedy, with rap, in that in all three of those, the words are very important, but also important, and not just also important, but inextricably important is performance, is delivery, yeah. right? And like John McWhorter in this piece says that you know, he says, hey, you know, Jay-Z just published a whole Im impressive book of rap lyrics. And that's fine. And you can do that. And like rock stars do that too and whatever. And in some rare cases that can work well, you know, for the most part, it, it you sort of want to hear it. You want to hear it aloud. I mean, like even our, um, we have a, a another co-host who's a big rap um, aficionado and he just sent us a couplet from Aesop Rock that you know, I, I read it and I thought, this is impressive to an extent, but it, honestly, I just think it would be better if I heard it. I think like it, it kind of needs to live in the ear. And I, and I suspect that, I mean, certainly like, I can't think of a single comedian who would want, there are comedians who write books, but I can't think of any stand-up comic who would want his delivered material to be rendered in print and published in print. Like you wouldn't want someone to read your jokes. You need to be able yeah. to deliver them to make sure they land. You know, I don't know whether I classify myself as a you know, written poet sure. or a spoken word right, performance right. poet, right? It's like, I don't really, but I think when I write, I'm writing in performance a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I'm, 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 I'm writing uh, with a rhythm, right? But yeah. I've asked people, I said, well, when you look at this book that I've put together, it is a coffee table format book. So it's got 
very, very rich and deep photography from the streets of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and then it's also got the poetry to complement it. And I've said to people, oh man, I'll, I'll, this needs to be heard. I don't, I don't know if, you, if, if it hits the same or if you feel it when you just read it. And I've had people look at me almost like, you can't be serious. When I sat they don't, here they, and I they, read it's, they don't, they're skeptical that there's a difference between how you perform it and how you would read it by yourself quiet on a page? They're almost skeptical in that the impact that they feel is different. And I was very much taken, and I've had that response multiple times where I'm like, wow. And it makes me feel good to know that people are still reading and, and able to give poetry the attention it deserves when they read it. Yeah. I, okay. So I, I am, I'm skeptical in the opposite direction. I've just found that most spoken word poetry on the page is pretty flavorless. It just, fe it often feels like the, the, as with like pop music lyrics, often it, what can be incredibly soulful when delivered in a human voice with a particular persona attached to it can feel sort of flat and thin on the page. Honestly, that's my feeling about Dana Joya's poetry. Like Dana Joya is a really smart critic, but his poetry, I mean, he's like, he's one of the marquee new formalist poets. And I have not read that much. I mean, I, I should read more of his poetry, but when I have read poems of his, when people have said, oh, look at this, look, I think like, that's like a fine pop song. Like, A, like, it's not that musical. Like, he doesn't have a great ear for, for meter, to be yeah. honest. He just, like, it's not, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let him, you know, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know what the, the equivalent, like, I wouldn't let him go on a date with my sister. Like, I wouldn't let him scan my poems. I, I don't, you know, I don't know, like, that doesn't seem like his, his forte. But I, I, I feel like that's totally been my experience with spoken word, is that as with stand-up, as with, as with uh, rap, as with pop music of any kind, I, like, I want to hear it performed and I think like where where okay so where where there's an additional element to this that I think is is not always true of like American standard pop music because of a lot of American standard pop music is sort of like stuff that anybody can cover, whereas with rap, with stand up comedy, with spoken word, and I would even say with some insta poetry with people who, who get into like and like that's part of the guy who came on before is a is a version of an influencer. He's a he's a, a particular stripe. He's not the not the Rupi Kaur type, but he's sort of a, a, an influencer in that part of what people are getting when they get his poetry is his persona. It's coming from him, and that's part of what makes it land. And I think most spoken word I've encountered also has that quality where it it, it part of the enjoyment of it, part of the effect of it is that it's coming from this person. You know, Richard Pryor's a genius and he's a verbal genius and he's a theatrical genius. He's, he's a genius in composition and in delivery, but also he knows, and this is part like, I think like standups talk about finding their point of view. And like, he knows that it's not like, you, even a, another very talented performer would have a hard time performing his same material. Because part of it is that, it, not in all cases, in some cases it transfers, but in many cases it needs to come from that person. And I think some of the poetry I've heard you read is so personal that it feels like it's it's personal in a way that is actually, it's important that it actually is you saying it, that your persona is attached to it. 
here's something that I think is very interesting. Okay. Um, because as you were speaking, you kind of arrived in the in in the vicinity of where my head is. The <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm working on it. <laughs> no, no, this is this, this, is, this, <laughs> okay, this please, is great. Please. Yeah, yeah. When you consider where it comes from, and and that's kind of how you arrive back at like the actual person, right? When you look at where it comes from, then you then you look at that person and and find out if if you ask them where it comes from, right? Because we may say, oh, it comes from Richard Pryor, right? But if we ask Richard Pryor, where does it come from? He may say, this comes from my pain. Or he may say, this comes from my story, right? Now, once you take it down to that level, there are some things that are so powerful that when you engage with them, they can kind of transcend what you expect to get from that format. So I've had people come to me in tears after reading poetry and having never heard me before recite it, but they've only had my book and were coming back to me saying, this is what I read and this is how it moved me so. And so I think that there's this interesting thing that when the source of what you're writing, like you said, if you're writing so that you can one day be, you know, read in the school, you know, yeah. what is the source <laughs> you're, or you're the doomed. yeah, you're doomed. Yeah, what's the what's the motive? <laughs> and so when 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 I write, my writing is to motivate the masses. It's to I'm not writing to be a poet. Poetry is just one of the ways I'm able to share what's in my heart what I want to express. And I think because of that component of it, that gives it this additional magnitude that impacts people, even if they don't get a chance to encounter me performing it or reciting it on a stage. And that's been really breathtaking for me and, and humbling. Okay. Well, that is, I mean, to me, that's, that's a successful example of what some people call page poetry. Like, I mean, when somebody asked me the definition of poetry, a a slightly snotty answer I gave a few years ago was poetry is the art of making strangers cry using as few words as possible. And and like, that's something, if you can do that on the page with nothing else, that is, you know, however you want to call it, literary poetry, conventional poetry, page poetry, whatever you want to categorize it as, that to me is a, is related to spoken word poetry. But I think there's a, like, like when spoken word poets say, as they should, when poetry, like, as they should, they make fun of academic poets and their inability to perform well because academic poets are famously terrible at stage presence. Uh, and, and like, and that's a very accurate criticism. But I think what, what spoken word poets are missing sometimes is that, uh, when your verbal art evolves in a setting in which you are constantly performing it aloud, often what can happen is that the performance carries a lot of the weight and it, and it should mm. carry a lot of the weight, right? I mean, like when you write a script and like, that's something that like beginning playwrights lose is they, they try to pack everything into the lines. You have to leave a lot out in order for the actors to have something to carry on stage. So you have to leave it, you know, you can't, I, um, 
uh, Sondheim writes about getting lessons from who is his mentor, Rogers. I think I can't remember if it was Rogers or Hammerstein because I can't remember which one does which. But he was one of his, his mentors said he would he would write in certain cases extremely plain and spare lines because he knew that the, the music was going to be big and the music you needed to leave room for the music in there. And so I imagine if your if your poetry is evolving in that setting, it's sort of like the reason that like we don't have dragons. The reason like dragons don't make sense evolutionarily, like dragons meaning like a giant fucking reptile that also has huge wings, that also has like four, often like four giant paws with giant claws on them and can breathe fire and has huge fangs and big horns and everything. The reason we don't have that is not just because uh evolution never provided it, but because all of those different elements that did appear in various animals uh, used up the budget, right? Like like the budget for that kind of creature is an insanely enormous caloric budget and and, and nature is much more streamlined than that. I, I mean, I think, I think it's why like I find a lot of spoken word poetry is incredibly powerful, but then it loses something on the page because it, it, it had to leave, lose something on the page because it had to leave room for that performance. So do you find yourself writing differently? Do you find yourself adjusting? Do you find it that it's just? Yeah. So, so the thing that is the X factor is the source, right? So when you are, so the, the passion makes a difference, especially when you look at the larger body of how I view poetry, right? So even in a room talking to the CFO or CTO and CEO, yeah the words that come out of my mouth may not rhyme or be what I've written on paper, but it may end up having the impact of poetry. When I'm writing on a piece of paper or even using my phone, the, it's, it's, it's not necessarily my skill that I want to say I can give all the credit to. A lot of it is what has made me who I am that, that provides something unique when you encounter it. So when people read the poetry that I've written from my book, I've had people who have the types of encounters that I would only think happen when they encounter the spoken word. But because it's not about me, it's not about the spoken word or the written word, it's about the message and the motive behind it, the passion that I'm putting into it that makes it different. That's why when you mentioned a Richard Pryor, yeah, I responded yeah. because I know that he was passionate oh, no, about no, what he no does. Doubt, no and doubt. that yeah. creates a power that goes a little bit further. I, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And like most poets I know who are were, like, not poets I know, most poets I love, dead, alive, whatever, of whatever background, of whatever time period, whatever, most poets I love, I mean, all poets I love, have there there is passion that is evident sometimes it's it's deeply buried sometimes it's closer to the surface but it's there if it's not there if there's no passion there's no poetry i would say but i don't Did think I that's oh, yeah please 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 yeah yeah okay so, so so and this is this would be cool if i could share two poems oh yeah you want to and... po yeah please yeah all right yeah go for it go for it yeah okay so the first one think about listen to each of them as if you were reading it on paper, but also process it at the same time as you're hearing it and experiencing my voice. Okay, right? I'm gonna say, 
I, I will do my best to do that. And I spend a whole lot of time reading poetry. And so I, and, and, and like, I, I have a background in theater. Like, I think I will be pretty good at doing that. Pretty good. Yeah. I think that's a tall order. I think you're actually asking something difficult, but go, yeah, go for it. And we'll simultaneously. Just, I, have a, simultaneously. All right, I have a smart, I have a smart audience. We'll, we'll give them okay. a, a test. All right. So we're going to try to, the test is you're going to deliver something. We're going to try to simultaneously listen and also imagine just reading it cold in a room by yes. oneself. Okay. All yes. right. Go for it. And you got a title. You're going to do these separately so we know which one is which. I'll do them separately. Please. All right. Perfect. The first one is called Pride. Pride will put you in a box. Confined with locks that others have the keys to. And the only way to let them release you is to sacrifice that pride white flagged and peaceful. Humble is the way to avoid becoming your own prey or a prisoner to what you say. Be mindful and in control of what you display and leave open for interpretation. Vulnerable to attack and interrogation, negative exposure and humiliation. Be low, and they can never bring you down or cause you to drown in your own pride. Okay. Do you want to do both and then talk about them or talk about them separately? Yeah, so, so, so now I'll do the second one. Perfect. All right, go for it. So that was pride. Mm -hmm. All right, go for it. And the second one is called love's respiration. Black child. On a blue night, the red bright, the dead might welcome him. Or maybe he gets another chance. Maybe the Lord saved the last dance for the upbeat as opposed to the down. A sea of people let him drown in concrete and steel and keep it real. But love's respiration provides resuscitation and he comes back to life, scratching his head in frustration. Like, what just happened? The last thing I heard was scrapping and clapping. And then he remembers back when his mama let his tears drop like eye drops and how he always wondered why pops Never could get away from the cops or the blocks. Cooked, crack, call it rocks. Eight ball in the left pocket on the corner when the boys roll up, hold up, stop the madness and the potential maternal sadness. He never knew about the legacy, but love's respiration is filling him and bringing it back like black fathers released from prisons and imaginary boxes and he breathed <gasps> fresh air for the first time but his wound is still bleeding his wound is still needing medical attention he's living on adrenaline exuberant as he begins to realize that he's been given an extension there must be something greater out there or oh, i'm just one lucky man but deep down he realizes there's got to be something bigger 
and brighter and he breathes <gasps> and experiences love for the first time, though he had been the victim of a hate crime against humanity, against his sanity, because even when he spoke to himself, his words were poisoned with profanity, but in this bloody silence, he is able to hear something and feel something that he has never known. And he is damn near grown. So many tainted seeds sown that his roots have been suffering. And some had the nerve to frown upon his strange fruit. And someone suffering just like him had the nerve to shoot, to end his life that was never really begun. And as they run, oxygen begins to feel his right and left lung and he breathes <gasps> an awakened breath in miraculous resuscitation brought back to life that he may live in love's respiration. Okay. Now the first one was a poem which if I actually could you imagine reading the first one on a poem and having a similar experience with the hearing of it, just the first one, what do you think? Uh, I think the, f the distance between the experience hearing it and the experience reading it would be smaller with the first one. And the second one was more yeah, the performance. performance. More. Yeah. Or like it was heavily performance oriented. Right. Performance and I think persona as well. Yes. Yeah. So here's the thing. So everything I write is is coming out of my voice. Sure. So but the but the first one was kind of written in a structure that would work well on the page. Yeah. And Whereas it's, and it's it depersonalized. It's broader. Yes. Yes. It has, it's yeah. it's more flat just but the second yeah. one has all these intimations and the breathing and all that stuff. The part that has really blown my mind is that people have read poems like the second one yeah. and without hearing my voice have been moved much oh, sure. more than you would expect. I, okay. Okay. I, I believe, I believe that that is the response that people have, given, but I do think that like there, there are a couple of factors to consider. Um, I, so, so a thing that Joya does say in here that I think has some relevance still is that poets are not really being paid to write poetry. He said they're being paid to educate. And I, and I think you literally give inspirational speeches that are poems. So you're an inspirational poet in like the, in like the most direct, straightforward way. That is the that is the motive behind the reason why I'm there. If you're if if you're seeing me on a stage or in a classroom <laughs> or whatever, I'm you, sorry. Like, like if you're seeing me, it's like you're Batman. It's like if you're seeing me, you fucked up. No, it's like if you're seeing me, then, you, then like you're then you are at a company or a school, me, and you yeah. Then most likely. Uh, pretty much nine times out of 10, the reason why I'm there is because I want to have a positive impact on you. Right. That's the reason why I'm there. I'm, I am curious though about, because here's something I've always found about, about didactic poetry myself, is that 
if in order for me to write didactic poetry, first I would have to know something. Like I would have to like say like, I know this, I got it, done, I, I believe it. I barely ever know something enough to say, I feel so confident in this that I don't need to question my understanding of it. I can just deliver it to someone else. I mean, I'd feel that with my daughters, usually when it's something like, here's how you put your pants on, don't do it that way. You know, but like very seldom do I feel that way about something in a, in the, in a literary context. So first you have to know something and then you have to kind of commit yourself to delivering that message to a, an audience rather than, I guess, doing the other things poetry could do. Like you need to entertain, but then it, I guess like I think of Robert Frost saying that you should always write into the darkness. Like you should always be writing with an uncertainty of, of what it is you're finally after, because otherwise the end can, the result can be kind of pat. And I find that my response to a lot of didactic literature is that it feels sort of inert because it's, it's arrived at a conclusion. It's done. Well, sometimes I am commissioned to write for a particular <laughs> thing, right? If they commission that's it, always, that's what you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you there. Yeah. It's always a weird feeling because yeah, yeah, if yeah. there's a particular uh, thing that needs to be commemorated or if there's a particular loss that we're dealing with, then it's, um, you know, writing with with this, like almost a lot, a lot of times in those scenarios, I'm envisioning the moment. I'm, in, I'm envisioning right. the audience and I'm writing to them, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing for a very particular reason. And then sometimes I'm just, these things are just coming to me and they end up coming together in a way that becomes a poem. So I would say, depending on, you know, there's not just one way or one approach, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, every yeah. every writer has to arrive at their own sincere approach. I think. Do you, so did you say you write, sometimes you write elegies on commission? Like you write poems of mourning on commission? Yeah, yeah. I've that's written for all different types amazing. of, uh, types of um, like events, like if something is happening and uh, they say, well, <clears throat> we'll want you to, the, I think the, you, the, the, the most interesting part about that is it feels like being locked in the cage for a minute, right? Because it's like, man, and, and the pressure that comes because yeah. someone is saying, okay, well, there's an agreement that you're going to provide this right. outcome and that people are going to, <laughs> to, to be blown away by it. And it's a very interesting place to be because the pressure is there. But then it just, and, and, and a lot of times it, it comes down to the wire. Right. But yeah. I still love it. I, I, I still love those poems just as much as I do the poems that were completely of my own uh, accord. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. You're talking about like, do you write for funerals sometimes? I have before. Whoa. Yeah. Because I know people will like bring in a, a professional singer to sing at a funeral or sometimes even dance. Or, but like I, I had not thought about that. But people have commissioned you to come give an original. Here, here's a here's an yeah. here's one you probably please, may yeah, not please. have seen. Uh, you may not have seen it. So in my uh, when I was a young guy and I got I got married young, I was reciting a poem as I went down the aisle. You recited a poem at your own wedding, and people were people were just dead. I mean, 
tears. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was crazy. You got a captive but audience. Though. You, got, always, you, got them, you got them lined up for you. If you like, if you if you can deliver a poem and like not stumble oh, and not trip over your feet and like and have, have be sincere as you're like, walking, you know, you yeah, got those still, you got those yeah. people teed up for you. So the, yeah, yeah, you could. I've always been kind of. It's not the 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 source of it. I keep going back to the source. The the, the source of where it comes from. What is the source? I think for what you? fuels for me the source is love. Uh, love is where it comes from for me because. I have a love for the people out the people I haven't even met. I still love. I'm, I had a good uh, playwriting teacher who used. I don't know. Is that my dog or your dog? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not mine. No, yours. Okay, all right. So it must be mine. Someone must see somebody coming to the porch. So yeah, I, I had a playwriting teacher who said that the most convincing and satisfying motivation for any line was love but part of that advice was also it's got to be specific mm -hmm. it can't be a generalized oh Jesus i'm sorry like here's, radiant here's love. it's got to be a specific love yeah sorry go here's ahead, something go ahead. very important that that that, that i want to mention so i look at my life everything i do in my life as under this umbrella when I found purpose in my life, which is when I was 21 years old, motivation for the masses. So that's the that's the name of my first two books, Motivation for the Masses, Volume One, Volume Two. You found the purpose when you were 21. At 21 years old, spiritually, I came into understanding of my purpose on the planet, and that is to motivate the masses to do okay. four things: appreciate their blessings. Okay. Learn from their mistakes. Think optimistically and use what they've been blessed with to be a blessing to others. Everything I, in my life is I want to influence people to do those four things, not just through my poetry, but through the entire way that I live my life. I mean, I, I definitely here. All right. Here's the thing. I have super mixed feelings about inspirational speaking and about and about self-help books and this sort of mode of communication my sister loves it but my sister also does it like she's one of the very few people who will read a self-help book and then do all the things in it and then her life will be better and all those like it works for her she does the actual program and then and then improves herself and that, and she loves that stuff and so for her i can't i can't you know uh, uh dismiss it it's like it's great for her i i find it i have i find i, I find myself very resistant to it a question I have had since I first heard of you and started kind of looking in and, and like like learning more about you is who is your primary audience? Yeah, that's a question that I get a lot. And I've always had a problem answering that. And okay. I've, I've, I've always uh, kind of, um, I've always dealt with that when I, when I speak with people who are wanting to get the message to more people, right? Oh, uh, don't worry. No, I'm no. not going to step on your game. I'm not going to try. No, 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 I'm, no, no. Anybody no, who listens to this that. knows I am not inspirational. I'm the opposite. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to steal your audience. Don't worry. No, no, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. No, no. Yeah. That's that's not what I'm even alluding yeah. to. What I'm saying is okay. that when when I've had that question, uh, it's like if I'm talking to a person who's going to you know potentially be my publicist. Oh, right? I see. I see. They I see. may yeah, want to yeah, know yeah. that. You know, right, right, right. Or right, right. my publisher wants to know that, and. I don't, I don't have a target audience. I don't, I don't, um, now. Oh, okay. I, okay. 
Now, my voice is a voice where I am making it clear that I am a young Black African-American born in the 80s. And I think that when people who don't have the same experience as me read about, read here and hear my experience and passion, it opens up a door and it builds that bridge for understanding. And that's the same thing that I did in technology when I would help stakeholders understand why they're paying so much money for a solution. The Mm. same way now I'm able to take people uh, don't have an experience like mine, use my words and my voice to share where I come from, what people who kind of have my background have experienced and how we see the world. And I think that helps to build bridges. Okay. I have, I have, I have follow-up questions, but I, but that is an interesting, it's an interesting observation about what, like what it is about you and your work that appeals to some listeners and readers i I've, i mean and, and to clarify like i was not I, I am less interested in well i mean i guess i'm interested in who you're aiming for but it sounds like from the beginning your goal was everybody your goal was everybody. wide audience all people anybody like the the, the the thing i'm most interested in i guess is like your audience not in terms of your your aim but your audience in terms of the response and that like I, I have been surprised personally i am as i i've sometimes described myself a dumb left, lefty atheist and, a, and a, a a surprising number of my listeners are well smart they're smarter than i am for the most part but are uh very religious and very conservative um or you know moderately religious and moderately conservative uh which has surprised me i you know i was part of what was somewhat startling to me was just to give you like my own approach to this is i got uh i think it was like a second hand email text message via my dad but i got i was recommended to to look into you by my uncle who forwarded a video of you doing a live performance of a poem or i think you were sort of speaking and doing a there's a poem sort of poem and speech interspersed i so what startled me a little bit seeing when the, the video that my uncle sent because you were very uh i mean incredibly poised and confident and clearly like very polished in your presentation both speaking um, I mean, part of it was like a long introduction by a guy, but then you spoke very uh, like fluently and confidently and clearly, and then you kind of lapsed in and out of poetry or what seemed to be either some poems or excerpts from poems in a way that felt very, very confident in practice. And you were a very, very effective performer. Also, you were, I, I'm going to call you young because I think we're the same age. So you were young, uh, um, <laughs> uh, you're young, it's like young black guy speaking in, in music, speaking about a, a like a, a pretty pretty challenging and in some ways hard upbringing and specifically like black american upbringing in a room that was super white and super rich like that was what i was seeing on the video and like the the venue seemed like a very tony it seemed like almost like the bar at a high rise you know building or something so it it just gave me pause and made me wonder like well what is the both like a, it's super impressive that you've got this whole room wrapped around your finger doing this. And it's like a room of people who don't share a lot of things with you, but clearly do share some things with you, like clearly do connect with you on some level. And part of part of that has to be, as you said, they're com- they're connecting with like they're they're getting introduced to something that to them is not doesn't already go without saying, which is this kind of background. But then they also connect with your message. What do you make of that? Well, I would say primarily it's a it's a feeling that I think it's like 
man, I, I, I wanted to, you know, hopefully have a positive impact on somebody. And I see that I am. And that is the, it's almost kind of like a vain statement to be like, man, I'm kind of getting off on seeing this thing work. No, but it's like seeing that positive impact yeah, 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 yeah. is like, it makes me feel like, man, I'm doing the right thing. Let me keep doing this more and more because I see that it's giving value to people's lives. Okay. And even you talked about, you, you alluded to how when I'm, when I'm talking, a lot of times people don't even clap for my poetry because they don't know when a poem right. is ending or yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just, I'm just weaving some of the things that are on my heart into um, what I'm sharing. So I don't even put any emphasis on this is a poem. Right, I'm right, just right, 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 right. sharing and, uh, you know, it just flows that way. And many times when you see a poet at the beginning, you know, you know what it is. It begins and it ends and there's applause or, you know, snapping of the fingers yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever the case may be. For me, typically, there is none of that because right. nobody even knows that the poem is begin began or ended, but they feel the rhythm. And they're like, hey, what just happened <laughs> when I, yeah, yeah, when yeah, I yeah, transition yeah, yeah. out of it? <laughs> And it's, right, cool, it's cool to see that. No, and, and, and it, I mean, that, that, is, that, that is quite striking, that kind of lapsing casual m movement in and out. And that is something that like, holy shit, at like academic poetry readings, famously, there's like the worst moment in an academic poetry reading is the moment when the friendly banter breaks and we turn to the recitation of the poems. And then you think like, oh, fuck, she's doing poetry voice. It's, this is the, no, the fun is over. Well, maybe you can invite me to one. I'd, I'd like you to should, Yeah, I was going to say, that and, that, and that is where spoken word poets are right. Like, like academic poetry reading does need something. We need some lifeblood. Needs some kind of shit. Break something up. Change something up. So okay. So there's this moment in Eudora Welty has this this memoir called One Writer's Beginnings that everybody recommended to me. My beloved mentor gave it to me. I think it's incredibly boring. I, think it's, I could barely get through it. But but there's one great moment in it. The great moment is she's a child. She's riding on a train and she's looking out the window, watching the landscape scroll by, whiz whiz past her. You know the the. the uh, and then she she catches sight of the of a, a house in the landscape that's that's whizzing past her, and she sees the pass, house pass by her. She's a little child, and she has this moment where she realizes, oh, for them, I'm the one whizzing past. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, I'm. They're not actually whizzing past. It's just because I'm the one looking. So she realizes the the limitations of her own perspective. So here's what I wanted to figure out is like, I wanted to figure out what was the train and what was the house. When I saw this video of you doing a performance to a bunch of rich white people and uh and i don't mean to speak dismissively of rich white people like I've, I've got a lot of rich white people in my life and they're great you know but like there's like it, it would the the contrast was just was striking to me and the fact that it was my uncle you know was the one who was a you know conservative rich white guy like but he had encountered you in this context when i saw that was i seeing you in that room because that's just who I am. Like I, because I got, I got recommended you because you came to me by the recommendation of a rich white guy. Cause like, that's where I come from. Or was I seeing that because that's a typical room that you're in. Right. Like what, like, I guess that's my question. Uh, that's a very, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, the rooms don't get typical. It's almost okay. like not being able to define the target audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And your and your target, as you said, is everybody. Your target is comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. So, so for an example, I'm talking. Yeah. Um, sorry. Go ahead. Just this past Saturday, I was at Georgia Tech, and there's a group of young people. There's about thirty kids. 
um, <clears throat> all from different high schools in Atlanta, a part of a three-year program, and they meet at Georgia Tech on Saturdays. And I was there, spent probably an hour and a half, two hours with them, um, going through a talk, sharing some poetry, things like that. Um, so, and then, and then the, uh, the event that, that you're referring to, if I'm thinking about the same one, if, if you kind of pan the camera around the room, it's, uh, it, it, it was definitely a, um, you know, a, a mixed bag of, of, yeah, yeah, of people yeah. there. Now these people were all pretty much working professionals, but yeah. in terms of the wealth levels and in terms of the the, the uh, ethnic demographic yeah, yeah. uh that there was a there was a you know a, a variety there there was a variety there 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 was definitely a variety it was yeah. it was it represented atlanta fairly well it represented yeah. buckhead really well okay but then i yeah. have been in rooms where the only people in there are yeah. rich white guys yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and i've been in rooms where the only people in there are people who don't have homes um, I've, 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 I've been in, I've, you know, in Iraq, in Qatar, yeah, where, yeah. you know, it's troops and they're getting together for a Bible study and I'm in there and I'm sharing some poetry. So I've done just, uh, I mean, it's a, a, a funeral, a wedding, uh, you know, uh, what the rooms have very, very, very wide. Yeah. That is, I mean, that, that, and that's something I, I have always liked about Christians who practice what they preach because Jesus had dinner with prostitutes and he had dinner with with rich guys and tax collectors. I mean, he said he would sit down with anybody. So like that that part I very much, and I think, um, yeah, Somerset Mom who says that the writer can go to anybody's party. The writer can go to the rich parties, the writer can go to the poor parties, he can go to the bohemian parties, he can go in, anywhere. And so you're, you're the common element, but you cross through a lot of different contexts. Here is a concern I have that I wonder if you have a response to, because it's something you've thought about a lot more than I have. A concern I have about a message like Man's Search for Meaning, which is effectively, you can overcome any difficulty, you know, no matter, no matter how hard you have it, you can rise up and you can, you can, you can beat the odds and you can be, you can make, make meaning out of any uh, hardship. And when I hear that, I, I think on the one hand, like, I could never disparage somebody for doing that, for making that, you know, he survived the worst conditions imaginable and he made something and I could never speak ill of that. I mean, that's an, uh, that's an astounding act, but applying it universally to others sometimes makes me want, like part of what I wonder when I hear a message like that spoken to a crowd of rich white people is I think sometimes I wonder if that message isn't appealing to some people who have a lot and like keeping what they have because it's in some ways a way of saying, like Dana Joya, Dana Joya in this essay is extremely nostalgic for other people's poverty. He's, he's extreme, he talks, he speaks very highly. Oh, the good old days when all of those poets were poor. He's a rich businessman, but he likes thinking about like, well, it's good for them to, to struggle and be poor. And they can, if, you know, if, if they really have stick to they can come up, they don't need a handout. They don't need help from me. And I think on the one hand, if you are struggling, then it is probably good for you to think, I need to do everything I can. I need to rely on myself as much as I can, because that, that's what's gonna give you the best chance at 
at making something for yourself. But on the other hand, if you are somebody who is in the position of giving a handout, that message might be appealing to you for a slightly self-serving reason. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I think in terms but d of tell me I'm wrong. Argue with me. Don't worry. I just, yeah, well, I don't, I don't mind if he, yeah, but no, no, I mean it, well, I mean, it does, it, it, it kind of makes sense. I, I, I can see a part of that in terms of when I'm delivering um, a message in terms of the motive behind it, the motive behind me delivering a message is always to create a positive impact for whatever it is, your um, use case for it is. So even if you're, you know, you're, you're uh, extremely uber wealthy and yeah. you know the way you view life may be completely different from the way most people who hear my my message view life i still want there to be something in there that can have a positive impact on you and each person that hears it can find their own way of how it's relative in their own lives and 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 how hearing it can have a positive impact on it because it doesn't always have to translate into an action. It could be translating into just your mindset or it could sure, be translated sure. into yeah, yeah, yeah. your, you know, level of optimism or whatever it, is, whatever it may be. There is a positive thing that can be extracted from what I have to say, no matter who hears it. So, oh, and no. it's, I, I don't think you change. I think you're extremely consistent. And I think the, the message that you're, delivering comes clearly from a very sincere place in a place of like deep learned experience. And like you, you, you have built this knowledge and you've paid for it as you, you know, like you, you've built something up yourself from, le you know, less than, than other people might've had. But, but I wonder if the message is received differently by different people. I think the message, I think I you're, totally think right. you're, yeah, you're spreading, what, yeah. a, you're, you're trying to reach out to everybody. You're trying to improve, you know, positively affect everybody. I just wonder if, I just, I, for example, like I often find that the people who are fondest of tough love are the people who, who tend to see it applied to others. And I, and I don't mean that the, the tough love doesn't, doesn't apply to them as well. But I think, again, if the message is no matter what you can overcome, mm -hmm. then I wonder to what extent people who are already don't need very help. comfortable might say, I don't need to help them. They can overcome. Yeah. Well, if the if the if the message is a message of hope, right, and a person who doesn't need hope hears it because they already have everything that they would hope for, right? You no, know, there are other components of the poem that, or not just the poem of their interaction or engagement, you know, in, yeah, in yeah, that yeah, setting yeah. that could impact them in ways that only they can share, right? Because I've had people who hear something and you would think this applies to them, not at all. Right. And it ends up moving them in a way where, you know, in some kind of way it impacts them. I've, I've literally had that to happen to me um, where the well-to-do person is at the end, like, man, coming to me in a emotional place saying the poem that you shared, impacted me in a positive way. And it might be one where you would say, well, why would that impact you? But it's something that you didn't, you can't predict that you, that touches people in ways that you might not 
know ahead of time. Exactly. Yeah, some okay. people may because there is a generic message and that generic message has something that I think may universally be understood in the English language. But then there's some things that are that are encapsulated within the whole performance or the poem or whatever it is that is not necessarily it's the, it's the reading between the lines. And there's things that people can extract from that. And when they get it, even if they aren't in a place where they need the motivation or they need the push. They may have everything figured out in life, but there's still more. And the positivity has no limit. And every time you encounter with me, some of that positivity is going to rub off. So um, a, I gave an introduction to a poet at a conference recently. And one thing I, I said about him was that in his poems, there's always a hook and nobody has ever let off it, least of all the poet. That he that you know when this is it was talking about David Yazzie and I do feel like in his best poems, uh, I, I I I leave them feeling a little uneasy because I feel like he is. It's sort of like the um, do you know that amazing painting the uh, is, I think it's Caravaggio the the vocation of Saint Matthew, where there's Saint Matthew is counting coins at one end of the painting okay. and then Jesus enters at the other and he just points and there's this ray of light that crosses the dark. Uh, it's a very yeah. dark, dark painting with this ray mm -hmm. of light that crosses and St. <laughs> Matthew's wearing his fancy, you know, he's like rich guys wearing his costume. He sort of looks up like, Oh, oh shit. <laughs> like, like Jesus has seen me that there's, yeah. you know, and that's the sense that I think in a good poem, often I will feel, uh, Ace Tollings has a wonderful poem called empathy about the Syrian refugees and, and being comfortable while other people are suffering. And, and that's, a, you know, a lot of, I think the poems that I, that have a moral or political or or even didactic component that I most value are the poems where I leave them feeling like, oh shit, like I got seen. Like I can't I can't ignore this anymore. I can't I can't pretend that I'm not on the hook. I'm on the hook too. And that's what I I would I imagine that, that has to be like you want to be positive. You don't want to be you don't want to be tearing people down. That's part of your style. Like that's part of just who you are, your personality, your style as an artist is you want to be positive, but it seems like you, you ha there has to all also be some element of wanting to hold people accountable, wanting to keep people on the hook. Does that make sense as a construction or as a. It, it does for some of the poems that I've written. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, sometimes I'm sharing things that are um, kind of, you know, almost corrective in nature. Like mm -hmm. this is the way it is, but it shouldn't be this way. And okay. it's up to each of us to help to make it change. You know, there are some poems that have a tone to them that are very much like, no, there is something that you need to do at the end of this. There's something that I have to do at the end of this. And if we don't, we're in a much worse place than we are even now. Right. So, so there is some of that. But then the majority of what I'm sharing is all about extracting the e extracting the purpose, the positivity within you, and increasing it. So I'm not. I'm usually when you encounter my poetry, it's going to be building you up or edifying you in a way that it doesn't require much tearing down of you. Sure. Now the people who know me, we may interact more. Right. A poem may lead to a conversation which leads to uh, a much tougher way of interacting. Right. Oh, sure, dealing yeah. with even harder truths. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that poem that you hear, for the most part, for me, my intention is not to uh, 
You're not trying to ruin anyone's day. Correct. Yeah, you're it's more so to edify, just to build okay. up and to encourage. I wonder if that's not a form of entertainment. Like, I feel like my, my, my wife talks about loving to listen to certain kinds of podcasts because she, where she just likes to hear people explain things. And I, and I don't know, sometimes I feel, because I, I totally understand that feeling. And I certainly get that feeling watching certain kinds of documentaries or reading certain kinds of articles where I, there's almost like a, there is the, the savor of education. There's the feeling of like, oh, this is improving me. But that's in a way, I think that can be a variety of pleasure. That I don't like. I don't yes, know that. Yes. That I think that may be a form of entertainment in itself. A lot of so, folks consume that stuff and are not like your sister in that they don't apply it. You know, they, they, no, they yeah, just read. True. Yeah, my sister is very unusual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of times I'm reading. Uh, I'm I'm reading some books and I'm not applying everything that I find in some of them because I, I I will read some of the uh, like the 10x rules and the, you okay. know the 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 different stuff out there. I'll read it just to. Uh, pull the positivity out of it myself, okay. but I'm not, uh, I don't really apply to the letter, sure, you know, yeah, the yeah. things I hear. I'm just pulling out little things that some of them are a positive addition to yeah. my, you know, way of seeing things. And yeah, a lot, yeah. some of it is stuff that I, you know, don't keep on board with me as yeah, I move yeah, forward. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, yeah. but it, it, there, I, I think there's definitely an entertainment aspect from it because some people are, just, I mean, when you're being passionate, especially, and it's performance art, yeah. then without a doubt, entertainment is is the that's the yeah. that's the framework that that, yeah. that that you're working under, and that's a different framework from that academic poetry, uh, page poetry framework. So it's kind of a beautiful thing to be able to move in and out of the both. Of them, yeah. The, so the, the the two big knocks on political. Like I'm thinking of like anti-war songs, like Vietnam, anti you know Vietnam War era anti-war songs. Like, like the two big knocks on political art tend to be one that it's often not very good as art. And we've talked about that, and we've talked about kind of the, like how you approach your you know like the the response you want your audience to have, which I think is, is crucially any poet who is not thinking about the response that the reader will have at the beginning, just like at least on impact, at least as, as my uh, co-host Cameron says, the um, I think he's quoting Jeffrey Hill, but he says the poem has to survive first contact. And like, if you're not thinking about that, I think you're not doing your job. But, but beyond that, the second big knock on political art tends to be, well, it's not very effective politically. Like it doesn't, like you can have even, even like all the greatest war songs, all the greatest anti-war songs in the Vietnam era didn't stop the war. And maybe some people would say, well, eventually they did. But I'm curious for you, since part of what you are doing is is instructive, inspirational, didactic, like you are, as you said, you are doing this in order to motivate people in order to change lives. And the poetry is the is the tool to get there. You do motivational speeches for, as you said, military uh, uh, settings, business settings, all sorts of settings. If a, If some organization has you come and give a talk and we can we can boost you we're going to have links to all your contact information everything whatever whatever you want me to link to or you know let me know what effect do you anticipate having on a group of people who have you come to speak what like a week later what will what will be the the, the residue they will uh so so what you're going to get is people coming together when they come together they collaborate more effectively and that's what I seek to do with my voice is have a positive impact and bring people together. So whether it's a team environment that uh, 
you know, the, 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 the team is fractured organizational environment where there's inefficiencies in the way we communicate uh, those types of things. Even in a classroom setting, uh, at the end of the day, I want you to walk away um, feeling motivated in a, and positively impacted for, to do whatever it is you're working on, as well as if you're interacting with others, how to come together and overcome the divisions that may exist within your scenario. That was this week's show. Uh, you can find John at his website, johnfdilworth.com, or on, as he says, all of his social media, presumably Twitter, Instagram, etc., at John F. Dilworth. I, I am very grateful for his um, for his generosity in coming on, and I do, as I said, I hope to hear from y'all what you made of this slightly unusual episode. I've had a few unusual episodes in a row lately. Uh, I think the next one is going to be is going to be sort of pure, pure sugar, which will be the, the the risk episode I teased in the recent secret show bit. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving and are, are getting ready to finishing up. I know a lot of you are in universities and you're finishing up your semesters uh, happily or at least uh, relatively uh, frictionlessly. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Hey, hey, hey.